how have some COVID-19 graphs misrepresented data? And how big of a problem is the use of intentionally or unintentionally wrong charts or graphs? This is Shelley Kaiser, Communications Manager for the Radau College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Kennesaw State University. I'm the host of the Thought-Provoking Podcast, where today we'll find out the answers to these questions as I talk with Dr. Sarah Doan, Assistant Professor of Technical Communication here at KSU. We'll learn how visualizations like charts, graphs, and maps help birth the modern practice of epidemiology. And we'll examine how you can be a savvy consumer of technical information. Welcome, Sarah. We're really glad to have you with us today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I'm excited to chat about technical communication and misleading COVID-19 charts and graphs. Wonderful. So speaking of technical communication, for us lay people, what is technical communication and what, what kind of things do you teach your students? Well, technical communication as a discipline has been around for a very long time. There were technical communicators helping to build monuments and pillars and palaces in ancient Rome. So we are the people who look at communication and translate and summarize and explain and interpret expertise. So anytime that you see a user manual, anytime that you see a set of instructions, anytime that you see a user interface, those are technical communicators at work. Um, and in technical communication, one of the fun things is when our work is done really well, people don't notice it. People typically only notice if there are mistakes. So if the doctors want to tell us something or the engineers want to tell us something and we can't really understand their jargon or their high level of speak, you're the folks that help us understand it. Exactly. Um, we're the people who make things like hurricane maps or disaster warnings so that people know to evacuate if there's a hurricane. We're the ones taking that and putting that into plain language that people can understand. Okay. That's very important stuff. So um, you study charts that actually misrepresent data. So they're kind of the opposite of helpful, right? So how big of a problem is this? I would say that misinformation is one of the big problems of our time. Um, anything that purposefully or unpurposefully misleads people is one of the biggest problems in the information age that we're currently part of. Within COVID-19, there have been so many times where data has been misrepresented or downplayed or minimized. And so I've been looking especially at charts and graphs from the early part of the epidemic when people were just starting to realize that, oh, COVID is actually going to be a big thing. You know, you talked about technology. Is that why this is a big problem? Because we have so much technology, so it's kind of easy to share stuff? These days, we're in what Charlie Kostelnik from Iowa State calls the second golden age of data design. So, you know, back in the 1850s, there were a ton of charts and graphs coming out, and that's when the field really got established. But then today, we're in that second golden age. So people are starting to make charts that bend rules. Um, people are starting to make charts that don't look like charts did 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, and technology has been great because it's enabled us to play with genre and to play with the ways in which data is being distributed, in the ways that data is being represented visually, and in the ways that we talk about data. However, the flip side of this is that anybody who is able to now make a chart or graph can kind of become their own publicist, as Alberto Cairo says in his book, How Charts Lie. 
So, you know, I can go and make a really accurate chart. I can go and make it very beautiful and appealing and usable. But then someone with either ignorance of the data or someone who might not have the greatest intentions can also go and do the same thing. So it's very easy to lie with statistics and to lie with charts and to manipulate information. So one of my jobs as a technical communicator is helping people understand it with as low a barrier to entry as possible. Um, One of the things about technical communication that I love is its ability to democratize information. I want everyone or as many people as possible to be able to see my charts and understand them. So technology has kind of been a blessing because we have these, I know I've seen some really cool charts that really help you understand things, but it's been a curse because then we kind of put it in the hands of everyone and some people don't always have the best motivation. Exactly. And we tend um, in the United States and Europe and the West, we tend to associate visuals with logical and scientific thinking. Um, If I can see it, I can trust it. And that's not always the case. I was just going to ask you, you know, why people tend to believe charts and graphs. You know, somebody will say, I see a chart. It's in a chart. It's the truth. Exactly. But charts can be so cherry picked or um, a chart might be perfectly accurate. But what we call the annotation layer. So the captions or the data labels, um, you know, there are 31 cases represented in this bar on a bar chart or the captions, or what have you, might not tell the whole story. Um, There was a chart that came out on April 9th from Governor Cuomo's daily media briefing for COVID, and it was talking about net hospital admissions in New York City. But the annotation layer that became separated from the chart when it was taken out of the video conference and then disseminated in print media or online media without the video of Cuomo explaining it, was then misleading. It looked like only 200 people were admitted to a New York hospital or to any New York hospital rather. But instead, um, it was just the net gain or loss of cases from the day before. So making sure that the annotations stay with the chart is really important. I'm going to include a link to your paper and the COVID-19 charts that we're talking about in the episode description so that our listeners can take a look at them. So for people that might not understand what an annotation layer is, what it, what is that? What was he missing? So the annotation layer is any of the verbal elements on the charter graph. So we have the visual elements, um, the slices of pie in a pie chart, the bars in a bar chart, the lines in a line graph. But then we also need that annotation layer to explain things. Um, you need to tell the people what the chart is. You need to tell the people where it's from. Citing your sources is extremely important. If there was a previous version, um, say, for example, um, the WHO, World Health Organization, put out a chart and then the next day they updated it with corrections, they would definitely want to include an annotation saying, hey, this chart had inaccurate information and we've now corrected it. This is the version from um, December 15th, not from December 14th. Here are the two or three little changes. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So they need all, all of the information, just not part of the information. Exactly. How did data visualization help bring about the modern practice of epidemiology and the beginnings of germ theory? And why is it a problem when chart makers don't humanize the data? We'll find out when we come back. 
This is Shelley Kaiser. I'm the host of the Thought-Provoking Podcast and Communications Manager for the Radau College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Kennesaw State University in Kennesaw, Georgia, just outside Atlanta. Kennesaw State is the second largest university in the state with over 41,000 students. It's a Carnegie-designated R2 doctoral research institution, placing it among an elite group of only 6% of U.S. colleges and universities with an R1 or R2 status. The Radau College of Humanities and Social Sciences is the largest college at KSU, with over 400 faculty members and over 8,000 students. It houses 11 departments and schools with more than 80 programs of study. Our show features the amazing researchers in our college and their amazing and thought-provoking research. I know that in some of your research, you explain how charts in some sense brought about the modern practice of epidemiology or the study of disease in different populations. And I noted this had something to do with a cholera map. Am I correct on that? I am happy to talk about Jon Snow's cholera map. Okay, tell us all about it. Um, not the Game of Thrones character. Jon Snow was an epidemiologist and physician in London in the 1850s. He worked for Queen Victoria, and he did a lot of thinking about cholera because he was exposed to it when he was young, and it deeply affected his life. So he spent a lot of time thinking about how does cholera actually spread? So back in the 1850s, people thought that cholera and other diseases weren't spread by germs. They didn't know what germs were. Instead, they thought it was miasma or bad air. Um, You know, if something smells bad, you probably want to avoid it. Um, For example, if you have your cistern of waste, you probably want that to not be next to your drinking water. Definitely. Um, Things that we know now very obviously, but this was something that they didn't know as obviously then because germ theory changed the game. So there was a cholera epidemic in London in the summer of 1854. And Jon Snow got out a map of the streets of London because this was mostly located in an area around Broad Street. And so Jon Snow went and talked to people and looked at the death tolls that were coming out in tables. Um, So tables, you know, you have your rows and your columns of numbers. And tables are great, but sometimes they take a little bit longer to tell a story than a visual does. So Jon Snow got out his map. He talked to people. He figured out where people in that Broad Street Pump neighborhood were dying. And he went over and talked to people in a poorhouse which actually had very, um, well, bad conditions for people living in a poorhouse in London in the 1854s, or excuse me, 1850s. Um, they were colloquially known as debtor's prisons. You did not want to wind up mm. there. But sound good. The poorhouse had a lot fewer deaths than the surrounding area. Um, he also visited a local brewery. Again, they had a lot fewer deaths than the surrounding area. And Jon Snow's like, hey, guys, when you're making this beer, do you sample it? And they're like, yeah, we get free samples all day long. Um, So drinking beer actually kept the brewers from getting cholera because they weren't drinking the contaminated water. And eventually Mm. Jon Snow figured out through talking to people that the water was what was contaminated. And he wouldn't have found this out except that he was starting to mark things off on the map. So these outliers of that poorhouse and that brewery And then another um, couple of deaths caused by someone who had actually transported water 
a couple of miles away out of the neighborhood for someone who wanted that specific well water, um, helped him figure out, oh, cholera is coming from the pump and the pump has been um, contaminated. So the source of water was actually right next to a leaking cistern of human waste. Oh, yuck. So even though the water smelled good, it smelled or smelled good, tasted good. Um, this actually led to the creation of germ theory because he figured out that the water was what was contaminated and all thanks to this map. Okay. So that's interesting. He, he did the map and that kind of helped him figure out this and probably save some lives. Exactly. Um, so he actually went down and they shut off the Broad Street pump and there's a pub there now called the John Snow. Oh, <laughs> if I ever go to, to um, London, London, right? Um, I'll have to visit. It's yes. part of history, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so to sum up, charts have great potential as a means of invention, as a means of figuring something out, not just as a finished product of data itself. Okay. So going back to what you talked about with your COVID-19 um, paper that you talked about, um, all the charts that misrepresent data, again, uh, you had mentioned earlier that, um, and this was part of that paper, that we are in the second golden age of data design. So what is happening right now that you you would categorize this as a second golden age in data design? So right now, one of the things that's been very different is how easy it is to make a chart. Um, you know, I can go in and with three numbers and five clicks, I can make a chart that I can publish on the internet somewhere. So the ease of being able to make charts is one of the, one of the hallmarks of our second golden age of data design. So the ways that we communicate data using visuals and then using words. Another thing is charts have gotten weird again. Um, this has been really exciting. And one pandemic-related example is the fan chart. So this is a line graph where the line goes up and down according to whatever is being measured. And it's measured over time. The vertical y-axis is measuring whatever is being measured, so interest rates or rates of spreading a disease, perhaps, which will become important in a moment. And then after a certain point, these charts tend to project future amounts of something. So they were invented within the last 10 years as a way of tracking interest rates. And they were pretty weird. I taught them during the spring 2020 semester, and I'm like, nobody really uses these. It, February 2020 was a more innocent time. Yes, it was. <laughs> and then I turn around, all of a sudden it's COVID. And there are fan charts of epidemiology rates of spread everywhere. So I was teaching fan charts before it was cool. Oh, cool. Yeah, you were ahead of your time, weren't you? <laughs> I, I try. I try. I see what you mean. I, I'm a National Geographic magazine fan and, you know, read that magazine forever and ever. And it used to be uh, mostly text. And now you really see a lot of data visualization in there, infographics and charts and maps and things like that to help you understand the information. So I can see how we've really embraced that kind of, of thing. Yes. And people are hungry for this kind of information. Um, people actively want to learn. And charts are a great way of making data persuasive and making data memorable. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. So in that same paper, 
Um, the first visualization that you talk about was actually in Time Magazine, which we think of them as being pretty darn accurate. And and I think you said it factually, it was accurate. So if it showed factual information, how can that make it? How can it be misleading? Oh, the time chart. I spent a lot of hours thinking about this chart and being frustrated by it. Um, It was shared back in March 2020 when people didn't quite know what to make of COVID yet. And I found it really fascinating because it's a series of four pie charts and they're all technically correct. The pie charts are meant to be what Edward Tufte calls small multiples. So multiple small charts that are meant to be compared. So there's a series of four pie charts. And the first one talks about COVID-19 fatal cases being 3.4%. Um, there's you know the massive big part of the pie, and then there's the tiny sliver out of it. The next one is the seasonal flu um, going from left to right. So second from the left, seasonal flu, fatal cases 0.1%. Um, The rest of the pie charts are in red and teal, but this one has such a narrow slice out of it that they don't even fit in any red. It's just the white outline. Um, The next one is SARS, which has a 10% fatality rate um, during the previous epidemic. So the last one on the right is MERS, and the fatal cases were 34%. So that's a pretty big slice of red. Um, It's about a third of the pie chart. And so what this chart did, even though all of the information is accurate and it's all being presented accurately, is grouping COVID with the seasonal flu is a giant mistake because the seasonal flu has such a low mortality rate um, and the COVID-19 fatal cases at 3.4%, it's just a different rate of spread. And so these pie charts don't take into account the rate of spread, and the fact that COVID is very, very contagious. Um, Its contagion rates are a lot more like SARS and MERS, which Americans or people in the United States typically don't take as seriously because we didn't have as big of a problem with SARS and MERS because um, the United States epidemiology policies were enforced very well for those two outbreaks. Whereas with COVID, once it got over here, it spread like wildfire. So these pie charts don't take into account the rate of spread. They also don't humanize the data. Um, This is a big problem in some visualizations, because if you look at these pie charts, you're probably um, reasonably educated if you're reading time, and you might say, oh, this isn't going to be a problem for me. It shouldn't be a problem for anybody else. But really, um, COVID-19 is having such a disproportionate impact in African-American communities, in Native American communities. And with people who are working class, you know, working in a grocery store, you're going to almost certainly be exposed to COVID. And so it just flattens the data to a point where it looks like it's going to be safe, but it's really not. Um, So humanizing the data and remembering that um, people make a lot of decisions emotionally is really important with data visualization. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. I know when it first started, a lot of people were saying, oh, it's just the same as the flu. And maybe that's one of the reasons why they did that, because it made it look like, wow, it's not as bad as these really bad illnesses that we could have. It's just, you know, just like the flu. But like you said, they didn't tell the whole story. Right. 
So um, the next chart you looked at in your paper was on a Fox channel in Denver. And that was a scale problem, right? That was a scale problem. Um, This was a fascinating case of a chart actively manipulating information. This chart adjusted its logarithmic scale on the y-axis, the vertical axis of a graph. You know, usually a logarithmic scale will be predictable. It'll go 30, 60, 90. Um, It's a little bit different than our scales where we usually divide by 10 or 100 or 1,000. It usually skips. And so this was fascinating because the first three markers on the line graph were at a predictable logarithmic-ish scale. So the first marker was 30, then 60, then 90. Then the y-axis increased from 90 to 100 to 30. And it tried to look like the surge of cases that happened in Colorado between March 21st and March 22nd um, were smaller. So this was hugely problematic. And it makes way more sense when you can actually see the chart. But this was a massive, massive deception. And I just found it extremely fascinating. Yeah. So they just changed the scale to make it look like it wasn't going up very high. But in actuality, they weren't being consistent with how they talked about it. Right. Because then um, the y-axis starts randomly skipping by 50. Oh. And then by 10. And then by another 50. So it's like 30, then Uh, 50, then 10. It changes back and forth. And that was just to try to make it look not as bad as it really was? Exactly. Oh, wow. When we return, are most errors intentional manipulations of data or just the work of some really bad chart makers? We'll also learn how everyone can ensure their charts don't misrepresent data and how you can avoid being misled by charts and graphs. How does hip hop help bridge the South's past to its present? Join us next month to find out. For Black History Month, we'll be talking to Regina Bradley, Assistant Professor of English and African Diaspora Studies here at KSU, about her research on Southern hip-hop. We'll find out how hip-hop has helped tell the story of the modern experience of Black Southerners, and how the group OutKast and other Southern artists aid our understanding of the post-Civil Rights Era South and help Black Southerners Speak their truth to power. So, you know, I was going to ask you, you had talked earlier about the third one, which is the New York governor um, used in a media briefing, that chart. So um, when you think about these charts, do you think that most of them are purposeful? Do you think they're trying to push a certain agenda or is it just really bad chart makers? I hate to, as they say, cast too much shade on other chart makers, But um, I would say the Time article felt intentional, but through ignorance, Um, not really understanding the full repercussions of COVID, especially with COVID being a problem specifically for Black Americans and specifically for Native Americans. And with COVID um, often leaving people chronically ill. There are people who came down with COVID in March and who still haven't recovered yet. So COVID is something you definitely want to avoid. In the New York one, um, that might have just been a case of people taking um, something and not taking all the information. And then the one at Fox, 
looks like it might have been more purposely manipulated. <laughs> I completely agree with that assessment. <laughs> um, you know, the media briefings are very comprehensive. I have sat and watched them because I'm a nerd. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's you know, it counts as my work. Yeah. Um, I'm very lucky to do purposeful, nerdy work. <laughs> and, um, you know, the media briefing, if you sit down to watch it all, is very comprehensive. Okay. But um, the New York chart makers there did not fully take into account that these would be taken out of context especially since Governor Cuomo was one of the people very early in the pandemic who, one, took it seriously, and two, would provide factual information that people could trust. Yeah. You know, you also looked at something else, and that is um, the COVID-19 messaging through Twitter. I can't say Twitter, through Twitter accounts. And you compared state-run accounts with accounts run by African-American organizations. So what was the big difference there in how they shared information? I am still analyzing that data. <laughs> okay. I am working with my research assistant, undergraduate student, Christy Kennedy, and we are looking at that data over break. Oh, okay. So she scraped about 10,000 tweets from Georgia, South Carolina, and Alabama's state public health Twitter accounts. And then we're comparing that with African-American-run organizations within the same state. What are you trying to learn? We are trying to learn strategies that African-American communities are using to be able to talk about COVID and to help people engage with protective behaviors like washing your hands, wearing a mask. So it's really important particularly because African-Americans have been so impacted by this pandemic. And we're hoping in the spring to be able to do some focus groups and a survey to talk about how African-American men, um, especially ages 18 to 24, are engaging with public health and proactive um, health behaviors around COVID-19. Well, we look forward to seeing what you find out. Thank you. There's definitely an opportunity there. Um, to be able to help more people, because often um, what we hypothesize that we'll find is that public health Twitter is very general, whereas African-American organizations probably have a lot more credibility, as they should. Yeah. Interesting. So um, if you are a chart maker, <laughs> and I'm a communications person, I do charts sometimes. So how can um, those of us who make charts ensure that they uh, create something that's accurate and not misleading? That is a fantastic question. The first suggestion I would have for them is to think about proximity and placement. Um, that set of pie charts from Time Magazine was not necessarily truthful because of the placement of the data. Um, grouping COVID with the flu, not a great move because COVID is very much not the flu. I would also recommend that people never minimize non-fatal instances of disease. Um, you know, COVID is real. COVID is not something that you want to get. Very often people are becoming chronically ill, having to go on dialysis, having limbs amputated. Um, you know, COVID is really something to be taken seriously, especially if you think you might be asymptomatic. And then if you're using a y-axis, use clear representative scales, um, and then label all of your data. Um, label as much data as possible. So back in March and April 2020, Stephanie Jolly 
um, who is now in New York, but was living in either Tennessee or Kentucky, started to create charts to be able to compare the information and um, policies that were coming out of Kentucky and coming out of Tennessee. And she showed substantial differences in the amount of testing that was being done and in the amount of cases that were happening because she was able to add so many data labels. She was getting her information from the CDC. She was citing her sources. And so even though um, this was just someone random who was able to make these really compelling charts, especially since she color-coded Tennessee's in um, Wildcat Orange and Kentucky's in Royal Blue uh, to go with the sports teams for the flagship universities of those states that people would be able to recognize. Um, she did a really good job of adding all of these descriptive labels. Like, this is when the governor of Kentucky closed schools. This is when the governor of Tennessee closed schools. And you can see the difference in the cases as they're being represented um, to compare with these policies. Very interesting. I, I actually worked in tobacco prevention in, in a previous job. And um, we did a similar chart that showed... Um, smoking rates over time and how public health interventions really impacted the reduction in smoking rates. So um, that was a powerful thing to show people. So you can actually, actually see that things are happening. And speaking of that, that person that you were talking about, I, I thought she said really in what she said, um, really encapsulated the impact that visualizations had. She said, this data has given people hope which is an infinitely more powerful outcome than any I could have anticipated when I sat down to make a graph. For every critique of scale or scope, others have said, I've been really scared, but this makes me feel like we can tackle this. So visualizations can obviously have, um, as we said, a negative impact earlier, but also a positive impact. Isn't that true? Exactly. That is absolutely true. And that goes back to when visualizations were starting to be invented back in the 1850s. Um, Florence Nightingale, the legendary nurse, um, actually was in charge of some hospitals during the Crimean War in 1855 and 1856. And she created these visuals to persuade surgeons and parliament, and I believe it was read by Queen Victoria as well, that, hey... More people are dying from bad sanitation in our army hospitals during war than they are of wounds or of any sort of direct bloodshed. It's been a long tradition for charts and graphs to have the potential to persuade people to take action, especially around health. Yeah. So, yeah, it does um, persuade people, as you said. So thinking of that persuasion perspective, do you think that the media or political officials are taking advantage of the fact that a lot of people are not able to really analyze charts and graphs and decide whether those are valid? Do you think that happens? I think it does. Um, I think that one of the things that's happening with a lot of people and I'm going to leave it very general, is that, and even I am guilty of this, looking at something, having a knee-jerk reaction to it, and then sharing it on social media. So I know that this is cliche, but be careful what you share on social media. Yeah. Um, things that might have pretty visual packaging or persuasive taglines might not always be the most accurate, because now um, anyone can go and make a charter graph. So speaking of that, what um, can we as 
lay people who are not um, technical communication professors like you, um, how can we not be misled by charts and graphs? I would say um, take a second to actually deeply look at the chart. Does it label its X and Y axes? If it's a chart form like a line graph or a bar chart that has an X and Y axis, um, the stuff we learned in geometry is actually relevant. Who knew? Yeah. Um, maybe I shouldn't <laughs> make a hear it. math, but it actually <laughs> does help in this communicative context. I wish I'd known that when I was teaching my children and they said they, they didn't, wouldn't ever use this again. But Exactly. Just remember, it's always why to the sky. Why to the sky? There you go. Okay. So go ahead. How else can we, we, we need to make sure that they're labeled. Yep. Make sure the charts are labeled. Make sure that the visual on the chart actually matches the title. Okay. Um, you would be amazed at how many visuals don't actually align with their titles. Hmm. For example, if there's an upward trend of something, see if it's represented over maybe five years instead of one year. Hmm. Yeah, um, definitely. For something that's longer term. Um, a chart that represents 10 years is probably going to be more accurate at showing a trend than a chart that only looks at data in one-year increments or in a one-year increment, rather. Um, the other thing I would think about would be, is this information cited? Can I go find it again? And I see a lot of charts that say CDC.gov, but I've spent a lot of time on the CDC website, and it's wonderful, and I'm glad that we have this institution, especially in the Atlanta area. <laughs> However, it is often difficult to find information on the CDC website unless you have a direct URL. Well, it's huge. XYZ website, give the exact page. Um, yeah. And you find the exact numbers. Okay. Yeah, that's a massive website to find things on. Yes. Lots of good, valuable information, but not easy to check on something. So do you have any last thoughts for us on, on all your research and everything you've learned? You know, if I could say anything to folks out there, it would be, please take COVID seriously. Um, as much as I love studying it, I also want this to be over. Mm -hmm. Don't um, we all? <laughs> I, I think everybody does. So please take it seriously. The sooner we all keep engaging or re-engage with these protective health behaviors, like wearing a mask, staying away from people who are not in your household, and um, being attentive to what other people around us need, the sooner we can just be done with it. Think about what's not being represented in the data. I've talked a lot about what's been there, but sometimes what's not being represented or certain groups of people who might not be represented is equally as important. I'm feeling um, really hopeful that because you are out there teaching our students who will be the people out there making the charts in the future when they graduate and um, have their jobs. And I, I feel confident that you're giving them the skills they need so that we can get some really accurate information, especially health. That's so important. Thank you. It's been my delight to be able to research this and to be able to teach it. One learning outcome I had from my spring 2020 data visualization course is students told me, oh, I understand the news a lot better now. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, the more we can be thoughtful, mindful consumers of our news and information, the better. Yeah, media literacy, very important. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Sarah. This was a fascinating look at technical communications, and we're all going to be on the, on the watch for um, misleading charts in the future. So thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. It's been my pleasure.
Thought-Provoking is a production of the Radau College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Kennesaw State University in Kennesaw, Georgia, just outside Atlanta. You can follow our college on Facebook or Instagram at KSUCHSS or visit our website at chss.kennesaw.edu. This is Shelly Kaiser, and I'll be back next month with another episode. Talk to you then.